Welcome to another edition of The Stunt Show. This is Mark Zomick on the Nachum Siegel Network. And uh, for those of you who have uh, spent any time on our website and have gone through and uh, memorized my uh, bio, you will find that I've spent uh, most of my, the overwhelming majority of my career working for a uh, one or another of the top two advertising companies in the world. And it occurred to me, and it has occurred to me many times over the years, is that can we have it all? Can we work fully in the real world, if that's a way to put it, or do we have, and what choices do we have to make in working in the real world? So I've decided to start a series of interviews with people who I know who work in the real world in a fully committed way and still yet live in our Torah environment, again, if that's a, uh, if that's a phrase we can coin in the real way, in, in the, in a real and true way. So our first guest in the series 
is Yaakov Poltman. Yaakov is a corporate attorney, and according to his uh, bio on his on the corporate website, he is a uh, broad-based general commercial litigation experience representing leading investment and commercial banks. Already, I don't understand what he does. He was educated at Brooklyn College and Yale Law School, according to his academic qualifications. What it doesn't say, he is also a product of the famed Long Beach Yeshiva. So, Yaakov Pullman, welcome to the Nachum Siegel Network. Thank you very much. So, at what point did you decide to become a corporate lawyer? Well, I knew from childhood I was going to be a, a litigator, and, and my mother said very early on, and when I represented my siblings in any battle they had, it was very clear I was going to be a lawyer. So, this is from childhood. And um, was this something you that was uh, discussed openly in Long Beach Yeshiva? Where it what was it? Is Long Beach was Long Beach Yeshiva uh, a yeshiva that? Um, encouraged or discouraged entrance into this type of lifestyle? Um, Let's say it was not the primary focus of the Masifta of Long Beach, but it was very clear even in my days there that I was going to be a lawyer. Interesting. Um, And there certainly are many people in our community who have gone through a similar education and become... I don't want to say a smaller lawyer, that's not the right word, but a lawyer, you know, a sole practitioner or a smaller company where perhaps they are enable uh they could continue a more insular lifestyle. I'd say that's fair. I, I, I think there are certainly a greater number of people who I grew up with in my background in my yeshiva who went on to practice law but in a different kind of practice. So what did you decide initially this was going to be big corporate law for you or it's something you discovered in law school? No, I knew it from childhood. If I was going to do it, I was going to do it right. I was going to go whole hog into the whole uh, practice. And your parents who are, to define them a little bit, uh, w- w- could we define them as more black hat or um, they encourage this? They were standing on the sideline, um, neither encouraging nor discouraging. They okay. knew who I was. They knew what my background was. I mean, my dad grew up in, in the Midwest and, and came from St. Louis to uh, Tarvadas, so he grew up with a... I wouldn't say a straight Brooklyn background. My mom grew up in New York, but uh, it's a product of Crown Heights Yeshiva and uh, you know Camp Lebanon. I mean, she was not what I'd call a uh, a black hat kid growing up, but like everyone else, the world evolved and she moved with it. They continued to live in Brooklyn, and certainly their values and our values were not uh, unusual for where we resided. Makes sense. Um, so. You certainly, in that world of corporate law, need to make, I don't want to say compromises, decisions maybe is a better word, choices maybe is the best word, probably day-to-day. Um, uh, every day and especially Friday. Especially. For, so, so how much do you share with the people who you work with? I assume you have an administrative assistant who needs to be keyed into it, otherwise you're never going to eat. You're going to be traveling on Saturday half the time. How much do you share with the people you work with? It's a tough question. I think early on in my career, um, and I think this is because I was a product of Brooklyn, I grew up with a mindset of there were two different me's. There was Yaakov Pultman, which was on what side of the, the river. And when I was in Manhattan, it was Jacob Pultman. And I was two different people. And... Uh, the world at large, outside of the work world, knew me one way. Uh, my family, my friends knew me one way. But in the work environment, I was a totally different person, and there were two halves to me. 
Um, well, when you say totally different person, I would imagine that your personality is similar on both sides of the equation. I imagine that your the, your values are the same on both sides of the equation. You're not like, you know, it's not like when you're watching, I don't know, for Survivor, and they say, well, this is not how I am in real life. Um, I think my personality is the same, and it's it's my personality and intellect and background that make up what I do in the practice of law. But when it comes to sharing, for example, early on in my career, uh, I would um, do the best I could to avoid any kind of conflict with religion. I, I was not out there disclosing my practice of religion. I was much, I, even though I grew up in New York, and when I started practicing law, I wore a yarmulke at work. Um, at one early point, it was clear to me that I had to declare who I was. Um, but then do my best to avoid the ramifications of it. So I was not one who was rushing to take clients to lunch. I was not one who wanted to go out with my friends to lunch because that always meant the conflict of what were you going to eat, where were you going to eat, were you going to declare, okay, I'm going to a kosher restaurant. I would prefer to avoid eating completely rather than having to, to confront that. And do you do you think that hurt you at all at that point in your career? Um, I mean, you were probably already married at that point when they were single. I mean, there were already differences in your lifestyle at that point. There were real differences based on um, stage of life. I was married uh, between second and third year of law school. By the time I started practicing full-time, I had a child. That set me aside from most of the people I started practicing mm-hmm. with who were roughly the same age but in a different stage of life. Um, so with that said, I, I would say I, I did grapple with, well, who was I and how was I going to make it right. in the practice? Um, the, the hardest thing for me was going to be when you were in New York, it was much easier. And my firm that I started with was a New York based firm that was focused locally. So I spent a lot of time in the, the local New York, New Jersey courts. But when I had clients and cases outside of New York, it was going to be much more difficult. There was much more of a challenge outside of New York. You mentioned, and you just blew by it, and I must come back to it, that you started your career wearing a yarmulke, and that changed at some point. Because I have the reverse experience. Um, I practiced four and a half years at a New York firm and figured, I'm at a New York firm. I came out of a decent law school. I have the ability to go in there and interview and be open about who I am. But um, in 1995, I was recruited to go to a bigger and more prestigious national firm um, that we'll call a more white shoe firm. Mm-hmm. And it was a firm that has and that has today um, a reputation of being um, just the most elite of U.S.-based law firms, um, but not one that was necessarily famed for – um, encouraging religious observance. It was just an old school firm with old school uh, clients, a big corporate client base, a big financial institution client base, but not one that was viewed as being encouraging of uh, individual religious practice. And, and when I made that move, it was when I changed from wearing the alga at work to not wearing it at work. Did it come up in the conversations at all, or it was all on you? Uh, it was on me. I mean, it came up a bit when I talked when the recruiter who uh, brought me over, uh, and I had conversations about it, and she basically said, look, you can get this job either way, but... In terms of your long-term growth in this, it would be much simpler if you were just another lawyer in the group rather than being obviously standing out. 
do you think that 20 years later you'd have the same um the same conversation with the recruiter um, I think it would be a little different. The world has certainly changed. Um, and I saw the shift. I mean, I, I came out of law school in the early 1990s. In 1990, I came out of law school. And it was on the heels of a little bit of a recession. And a couple of years into my practice, people were losing jobs. So it was just a different world then. The environment changed in the 90s, where it became much more focused with the tech boom um, and the bubble. It became much more focused on getting quality lawyers and many more people went to law school and the focus was on the lawyers and you had this generation of junior lawyers who had expectations of they could make a lot more money going into private practice leaving the the practice of law and going into corporations and the firms started to focus more on recruiting the people maintaining the people retaining quality talent and um, it made it much easier to do various things. So if you, you know, d- diversity became a, a much bigger topic. So if you were a uh, so now student, wearing yarmulke was so was a, a point of diversity. It's not the end of the world to be a little bit different in the late nineties and early wow. two thousand time frame. Are are there a lot of um, known from people at your level in corporate law? Um, there are many more today than there were 25 years ago. And, and there are real examples of people who have succeeded globally and who are famous for it, who are very talented, who are leading some of the top law firms in the world. Um, you've got people who are religious and people who are orthodox. Um, and you didn't have that 25 years ago. I mean, there, there were famed practitioners, but we'll say they were much more in the closet. Interesting. But... So again, so we get to the, the, the discussion of um, of compromise and choices. So clearly, wearing yarmulke, not wearing yarmulke, is a choice. Clearly, going out to eat, not going out to eat, is a choice. When you do, do you find yourself? I mean, you, you spend most of your time in New York, even though I know you've you, you you've practiced in many other places in this country and out. Do you find yourself having to it, it, outside New York or in so New York turning down? at this point, lunch offers or do you try to, I mean, there are some really nice, you know, we work in the same neighborhood of Manhattan. I'm not embarrassed to take anybody to La Marais or Solo on any day. Um, that That's certainly the case. I mean, there was a part of my practice where I traveled in the United States 50 out of 52 weeks in 1998. And I ended up trying a case in uh, Mendenhall, Mississippi. <laughs> And I was not a big. Is there a Chabad presence in Mississippi? I stayed in a place called Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where Southern Mississippi State University is located, uh, the the Golden Eagles, Um, and went into a Piggly Wiggly, a big (laughs) supermarket chain, and was shocked to find a Zomix rolls. Well, there was a kosher food section in the Piggly Wiggly because there was a uh, a conservative. Shul in town. There was, uh, there were people in the university who were Jews, and there had been you know, a group of peddlers heading through the South in the early 20th century who spent time in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and you find that there's kosher food to be found there. There were no kosher restaurants in Hattiesburg, right, I would Mississippi. Say, yeah. 
Um, so I, I could say in New York, it is easy. In, in a lot of ways, it's easy. You can take people to restaurants. You can entertain. You can do things that just make it much simpler. Uh, but when you ask the question of do I hesitate taking people out to meals, I would much prefer breakfast, which I can take anyone anywhere and get right. my bowl of cornflakes or my uh, cup of coffee, than I would uh, dinner. I mean, I find... My clients, I bring them from around the world. I would take them to uh, to Prime Grill, and they'd always say the same thing. Wine, excellent, outstanding meal, but it's a lot noisier in here than <laughs> I expected. Well, that's not that. Might, it, it might, it's probably less a function of the restaurant than it is the acoustics in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. I mean, Prime Grill happens to be noisy. Yeah. Um, well, the solo is generally not. It could be. We'll see. We'll see what happens in the new Prime Grill, exactly. which we can't wait for a block away from my office. Um, so going back to spending 50 out of 52 weeks in Mississippi. Yeah, on the road. On the road. Do you have help? You're, you're, you're all fending for yourself and making sure the food's in the hotel room when you get back there? No, right? no. I, I have been blessed with the best, uh, best PA, the best uh, assistant anyone could ever have asked. And she's been with me through two different firms through 17 years. And she knows more halacha. I mean, she's uh, of Hispanic uh, descent and uh, a Catholic who knows more about Shabbos, Yumtif. I mean, the story I always tell is when I was in uh, Amsterdam for Shabbos, and it's Friday afternoon, and I'd forgotten to check what time the sun goes down. And I call her and I say, Rose, what time does the sun go down in Amsterdam this Friday? And she said, well, do you want the Zman for the Gra or Rabbeinu Tam? <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, she has OU.org on her website, on her favorite. She knows where the kosher restaurants are. She's, and she's incredibly protective of me. I mean, the best, uh, example of it was I was flying back from Atlanta on a Friday. And Shabbos started about five o'clock and my flight was landing between 3.30 and 4 in LaGuardia. And she had called the car company that we use and she said, I need your fastest driver. And they said, no, no, no. All of our drivers are fast. (laughs) They're all responsible. (laughs) And she said, yes. But you've definitely had complaints about one getting more speeding tickets than any other. (laughs) In fact, she found him. He got me home in time for Shabbos. But she's very protective of my food and she's very protective of my uh, Shabbos and Yamta. She's very protective of all the things halachic. And uh, because of that, it has aided my uh, practice. It's made me much more comfortable. Do you um, do you find, as I have, that the religious Catholics are much more sympathetic than the non-religious anything? Well, I certainly find that my uh, my friends, the Jews, are always asking me, "What time do you turn into a <laughs> pumpkin today?" But and people who are, I mean, my friends in law school, my closest friends were the Mormons, who had strong religious right. values, who had big families, were married tonight. early. Right. They had strict rules, so they wouldn't drink caffeine and they wouldn't dance. I mean, they had the strict rules, so they understood the concept of adhering to strict rules, even if it, it sounds illogical. I've been reading a number of articles recently about um, sort of the strict rules thing um, that claim that people who can live by a set of strict rules find themselves more content, more happy than people who sort of do whatever they want when they want. I'm a big believer in that. Um, so, so again, coming back to the the two the, the two worlds, do you feel that um, that that the the choices that you had to make at any point hurt your career, not hurt your career, or I, I'd say they affected my career. It, it was. 
you had to demonstrate time and again that you were committed. So every case that we had meant that Matzai uh, Shabbos, Shabbos ends, and I had to head straight into the office. Right. I worked many all-nighters in uh, my office on Matzai Shabbos. And you had to do it to demonstrate that you weren't using your religious observance as a way to avoid work. You had to be, be seen as committed. Um, Even though at the end of the day, the billable hours would be the billable hours, you felt you had to make a showing of coming in? or It wasn't so much for the show. It was because the demands of practicing law are so great mm-hmm. from a timing perspective. And you have to make up for being out of the office. I mean, Yemtif comes out on Shabbos and Sunday three times in, uh, in right. a, a wonderful month, and it's perfect. But that happens rarely. There are many more times where it's three-day umptif and you've got Thursday, Friday, and Shabbos, and you're completely cut off, and no one can get in touch with you, and you are removed. And therefore, there's going to be a demand for during those hours when you can come into the office that you're going to have to come into the office. It's interesting. You know, you say you're cut off. I found that not only do people have a, have trouble wrapping their head about really being cut off, People, I have trouble wrapping my head around not being cut off. Like I said to my boss a few weeks ago, actually it was last week, right after Yumtif, I said, I don't know how you do it. Because she's been traveling, she's been out of the office, she, she, you know, she's half asleep now because she's gone for like four weeks not being in the office and being a client straight in, you know, 12 different plane rides. And I, and I just came back from two days of Pesach, even though you stay up to midnight or whatever doing the Seder, but it, with a different mindset, you know, it almost rejuvenates you to some, to some extent to being cut off. But that that's changed over my 25 years uh, around law. When I started, there was no such thing as email. When I started, there was no such thing as a BlackBerry. There was right. no. They had just started voicemail. Um, and there was no fax machine. They had just started these faxes with these curly paper that you would get. And because right. I, I think that was the biggest change in business. It wasn't email so much. It was the fax because. On our side of the in advertising, the once the six o'clock pouch went to the client, right, and there was one for every client. That there was nothing else you could send out to the client until the six o'clock the next day. And uh, one thing that's been, I mean, the BlackBerry has changed it because you are now. The concept is the client can always get you. Mm-hmm. Um, in the old days, I mean, we went on a family vacation to Disney World when my kids were young. And I was an associate at a large firm, and um, each of my kids got a picture taken with him or her next to their favorite ride. So someone got Space Mountain, someone else got Splash Mountain, and my wife took a picture of me next to the payphone because I was calling (laughs) in for my voicemail messages because that was my favorite ride at that time. But it's changed, and because there is an expectation that you're always plugged in and you're always tethered and you're always connected, when you tell people that I turn off for 25 hours, you will not get me, you won't hear me, I'm cut off, um, they at first are shocked by it, but after a while, I think you're right, they do look at that and say there's a beauty to it. There is a wonderful time when you are focused on what's really important as opposed to just what we think is important, which is work. Right, but I also find that the that the fact that you're always tethered is true, but the fact that you're no longer chained is true as well. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to always be in the office to get something done anymore. 
Yeah, although that I think is going to depend on the person. I mean, I'm one of those people who is still old school. I believe in being in the office. I believe in pen and paper rather than you're computer. pulling books. Come on, you're, uh, you're doing uh, LexisNexis searches, aren't you? Well, my colleagues, my associates are, <laughs> but but I am the person who, when he writes a brief, still sits down with pen and pad, and well. uh, and I believe in in the old way of doing things. Um, someone once told me that Rav Moshe Feinstein used to sit down and would write out questions and answers. And mm-hmm. they said, well, you know, you've got this memory, you've got this knowledge, why do you need to sit down and do it? I think it was Rabbi Landsman who told me, he said, there's nothing that will drill it into you than being forced to write it. And he would write it twice, yeah. one as the response yeah. to the recipient, and then once to, as a copy to keep. Exactly. And uh, I, I've taken that to heart, and it's, uh, you know, helped me in my career. Um, so what's the, uh, obviously you have to do Friday travel, which I hate and try to avoid at all costs. What's the, uh, what's the closest you've come to, uh, shall we, shall we say disaster? All right. Beaumont, Texas. I'm in Beaumont on a Friday morning to argue a motion and I drive from Houston to Beaumont at six in the morning. I get to Beaumont and there are 11 inches of rain coming down and I'm supposed to get from the Beaumont airport to court, but the entire Beaumont is flooded. I can't get there. And that is... Uh, evening happens to also be Sukkot. And I drive, rather than flying from Beaumont to Houston, I drive back from Beaumont to Houston. I finally catch my plane. It's, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. The flight's taking off and, and I'm getting really nervous. It's supposed to land at 5.30, lands at 6.30, Yumtif is seven and I, I'm, I'm feeling it. And I run. I had luggage. I left it in the airport. Where's my driver? He's not, finally I find my driver. He's an older Russian guy. I'm like, let's run. I make the guy run with me and I'm making him crazy. Why are you making me so crazy? Because we have to get from Newark Airport to Teaneck, New Jersey in the next 20 minutes. We have to. And he's very upset. Why do we have to? And I explain, and I'm normally not explaining my religious observance, but to him, I decide, okay, look, the sun is going down. I need to be in Teaneck. I've got 20 minutes to be there. You have to drive fast. Don't worry about it. Really? Uh, Look, I'm an Orthodox Jew. Don't worry. I'm Jewish, too. (laughs) That was the last thing I wanted to hear (laughs) at this point. Um, But uh, I think that was the closest I came. I came two minutes after Lechbenshin, but 16 minutes before Shkia. And it was for Sukkot. And my brother was coming, and he came into my house two minutes after me. So so (laughs) as bad as I felt, he made me look good. That was the closest I've gone. I've gone to three minutes before Shkia. And it only happened once. That I was in the 18 minutes even, but oh, well. uh, it, other than the, other than. But being, you figure, by the way, once the air once the door closes on the air, uh, on the airplane in Houston, you're going home. Yeah, but you don't know that you're going to land in Newark. You don't know that there won't be uh, ground issues. You don't know that you're not going to spend Shabbos in uh, in Newark Airport. I mean, I've heard. Would you spend Shabbos in New York Airport? Or you let the guy drive you home? I guess oh, not this Russian uh, who's yeah. Jewish, but. I don't know. I've heard of Rumfried talk about uh, being know, stuck uh, in JFK. And, are we uh, really at that level? I mean, because um, you think about it, you can't even carry anything in the airport. The airport is at least, uh, it's no air of it's, it's, it's not a Rishus Ayachid. No, it's probably, uh. You have to sit there for 25 hours. You go to the bathroom, you gotta hope that your bag is there when you get back. Yeah, well, I don't worry about the bag. The bag, you know. I've learned not to carry my tefillin in my, uh, not to send my tefillin in my bag. I, I've actually been stuck in the Lincoln Tunnel with a lot of other people coming back to Teaneck on a regular right. Friday where you've had two hours, but then everyone is calling their rav and you've got everyone, uh, collectively getting the psak of what they can do and right. can't do. So, so you feel a little better that you're not alone. It's the flights that I always feel better about. 
Right, I had an incident in Atlanta where I knew it was late, and, and the airlines don't want to talk to you about it, right? Because if you say, are we really going to take off on the delayed? But because I spent a couple times in the travel business, I had the lingo, uh-huh. so she had a conversation with me. There are some secret words you use, and then they tell you the truth. So it's great. But but I've had that where I'm sitting in first class, and, and they'll give you a bottle of wine, and kosher wine they'll give you. I'm like, I've got to keep that for kiddish. <laughs> I've got to keep that role. Yep. Minus. Uh, Mark Zomick here with Yaakov Pultman on the Nachum Siegel Network. This is an edition of the Stunt Show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We are talking about the choices we have to make to live in two worlds, and really to live in two worlds, um, living in both of them in a very holistic and gratifying way. Um, do you find, um, as you travel around the world, that um, most people are completely oblivious? Like, we live in New York, where I'm shocked to learn a third of Jews are observant. Um, if you grew up in New York, you think, I mean, I, I had this whole discussion with my boss uh, at Solo with a couple clients where she insisted that 10% of the U.S. population was Jewish. And, and I said, and we both think on our iPhones at the same point, like I know the answer to that question. It's not anywhere near 10%, but she went to school in Ithaca. She grew up in New York. This is what she's exposed to. And this, even though she's, you know, uh, um, Italian Catholic, it's not even, um, you know, on her radar that there could be, you know, what is it? A percent and a half, two percent of the country is Jews. Do you find people like are completely shocked? Um, I, I thought going into this that everyone in New York knows, uh, all 39 malachas of Shabbos. Right. Everyone. <laughs> you know, you don't have to be Jewish to know all 39 malachas. But as you go outside of New York, it becomes more difficult. I moved about 10 years ago to the firm I'm at now, um, which is one of the, the largest law firms in the world, but it's a global law firm. And over the last year, I've had to say Kaddish. And in saying Kaddish, um, I have found around the world minyanim. And mm-hmm. you think that, oh, it's only in New York that they've got an idea of what kosher is and what a minion is. But I've been in places like Wilmington, Delaware, and uh, um, I was out in uh, Palo Alto, and there, there's kosher food, and there are minyanim. I was in Monte Carlo and said Kaddish two different days in the Shul wow. of Monte Carlo. I've been in Singapore and in Hong Kong. I've been in Tokyo, and there are minyanim everywhere. And it's really, I mean, the, the web has helped tremendously because there are resources. Mm-hmm. People are, I'd say, um, not as current and not as knowledgeable. Just the average person you meet in the street of Singapore is not going to know that there's a shul, but... When you explain it, there, there, um, it's not quite reverence, but it's respect. And there is more respect, I would say, outside the United States than there is inside the United States about religion. There may not be as, as much knowledge, but there is a certain amount of, um, respect for your willingness to draw lines and to adhere to, to particular rules. So I found it easier than I expected, and I find the web to be a big help. I have also found that the uh, the Dafyomi is flips people out. Like I don't think they understand what a page of Talmud means. Uh, how much does it take to read a page? Well, no, but even if you show it to them, then their eyes just glaze over. But but to you know, people who I work with, still after me doing it for you know eight years already, are wait you wake up at four thirty every day to do what? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's not something, but they. You know, they, they, it's hard for them to wrap their heads around it, but they have a tremendous amount of respect and reverence for it. You know, at least the people that I deal with here. It's an, it's, it's interesting. Any, um, funny, shocking anecdotes where your worlds were of converged where, uh, 
I've had uh, I had to argue. Uh, this is the day before Tisha B'av, and I'm going. I get pulled into court to argue an emergency motion, and the judge says, "We don't have all the parties here. We can't have this argument today. Come back tomorrow at three o'clock." So of course, I now have to come back on Tisha B'av. Mm-hmm. Um, I come back on Tisha B'av, and another counsel who's in this case comes, and uh, he and I know each other because we went to Camp Manavu together, sure. and he pulled his shoes out of his bag, and I pulled my shoes out of mine, and we came in, argued against each other on Tisha B'av. Um, I've had to argue this past year on uh, Asar Bateves, an important motion in front of a judge at the Appellate Division in New York, and the judge I'm arguing in front of right. <laughs> is Justice Friedman, who is um, a wonderful judge and uh, has fasting the same way I am. So um, you, you find that the world is much smaller than you thought, and you'll run into a lot of people who face the same issues we face. Um, it, it, it's a changing world, and there are many more people facing it. I, w- I was at a deposition in uh, in England, in London last year, and a colleague from my office, when we finish at about one thirty, starts to head out, and I said, give me a second, I want to hit the men's room, and, and then I turn around and I see groups of people with yarmulkes coming and I'm in London in an office okay. of a law firm. I said, oh wait, maybe it's Mincha and because I'm saying Kaddish, <laughs> let me right. follow them. <laughs> and sure enough, I found the minion for Mincha. Um, you, you just find that the world is uh, much smaller than we expected it was. Talking about, I know you were saying Kaddish for your father-in-law for the past year. What do you, how did you manage to, you know, there's the, the, the last line of uh, the American president. How did you manage to uh, give or go roses and still remember President of the United States? One of my favorite movies. But how do you manage to be a corporate lawyer and still say Kanish Minch every day? Um, I have, uh, as I mentioned, my assistant who is tremendously uh, protective of me. So she knows that every day at 5 o'clock, I'm going to Mincha at in my building in a minion at Morgan Stanley. And Morgan Stanley also happens to be a big client of ours. So whoever calls me between <laughs> 5 and 5.15 knows that I'm at a meeting at Morgan Stanley. That's how Rose, that's our, our right. uh, expression for saying Mincha. Um, it, it's very affirming. There's this wonderful, I feel it every time I travel around the world and go into shul. So I went into shul in Berlin uh, a couple of years ago for Shabbos. And I'm sitting in Berlin with a group of Russian Jews who moved from the east to the west. Mm-hmm. And we're all davening the same nusach. They may have a sitter that is a, uh, a German-Russian translation right. of a Hebrew sitter, but we're all saying the same thing. And it's really wonderful that you can go anywhere in the world and you're perfectly comfortable for that period of time where you're davening. It is uh, it's something I've marveled at for my entire life. It really is incredible. Um, anyway, I, uh, I I thank you very much for sitting and having this discussion. I think it uh, it reaffirms a lot of choices that people around uh, around the world make on a regular basis. I guess I have one final question. Do you feel that once people have the knowledge that uh, you are you've made this choice in your life, and it is quite frankly a choice that we make every day, um, there is. I don't know, a heavier burden on you to behave a certain way. There is a, a bigger weight on your shoulder, even though you're not wearing a yarmulke at work. But if you are at that point known as an Orthodox Jew, you know, what, what, what feeling in the pit, pit of your stomach do you get when there's an article on the front page that some of our brothers and sisters maybe perhaps aren't behaving as well as they could? I think it's a burden. It's not just the shame factor. I think it's a burden on us um, to be examples. And, and look, we're not 
perfect and we fall down on the job and my language may not be as perfect at work as it is at home. And I know that if I'm not careful and I fall down in some respect, um, I'm going to be reflecting poorly on on uh, our brethren. I'm going to be reflecting poorly on religious Jews. So so there is a responsibility, and there are trade-offs. I mean, you, as you say, we have to make choices, and with those choices come the challenges. And one of the challenges is it's a burden on us to ensure that we are exemplary, and that that's a uh, another burden in the practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's hard enough to do what we do on a full-time basis and to be committed to it. Um, but to be an emblem and to be uh, an example, it's it's a challenge, and it it's forces us to step it up, and it makes you think about what you do and how you do it on a more regular basis. Totally agree. Jakob Pultman, thank you for joining us on The Stun Show. It has been an insightful discussion. I hope all the listeners feel that way. Certainly I do. Mark Zamek on The Stun Show. We will be back right after this. Log on my email Just the other day Had the craziest thing in my inbox I just gotta say I looked at this email The delete I went to press It wouldn't let me erase it Had no return address He talks to us He is directing us Oh, can you feel him? Got another email Then a second, then five more Someone trying to reach me Like knocking on my door Open the email A text with a web link Return receipt requested Really me think he talks to us he watches over us can you feel him you never are alone down here he always is around he's there for you when you are up and even when you're down so when things happen that I can't explain and I still
Now the choice is up to you. God sent us email. And every single day, we can open up the book of life and choose the right way. He talks to us. He's always testing us. Oh, can you see him? Can you feel him? Can you hear him? Do you want to? And we are back here on the Stunt Show. Mark Zomik on the Nachum Siegel Network. I guess an apropos song, God sent us email, Lenny Solomon and Schlockrock, one of my favorites. So with some of the remaining time, I wanted to stay mostly on topic in uh, the beginning of our, what will hope to be a continuing series on living in both, living in two worlds. And a couple of articles I read, uh, over, uh, over the hog in, um, that I wanted to call everybody's attention to, or at least part of those attentions to, uh, part of the article I want to cl- call everybody's attention to. Um, both of them in the Jewish press. So the first one I wanted to mention is an article entitled Why Secular Israelis Reject Haredim by Yori Yanover. Yori Yanover is a senior internet editor at the Jewish press. And basically the thrust of his article is uh, translating, I guess, and um, reprinting an article written by Rabbi David Block. Rabbi David Block is the official spokesman of Nachal Haredi, the Netzach Yehuda IDF battalion, basically a battalion of exclusively from uh, from um, from men in the Israeli army. And he talks about why he thinks that uh, Haredim have the wrong idea about the army, and Haredim have the wrong idea about the outside world, and why perhaps some of the um, anti-Haredi, quote-unquote, messaging that they are receiving is perhaps a mirror of the anti-secular messaging that they are sending. I wanted to focus on the end of the article where he um, where he quotes a translation of a uh, what he calls a rarely discussed ruling by Maimonides, the Rambam, in Yad HaChazaka Hilchos Talmud Torah, chapter uh, 3, uh, Halacha 10. That would be Gimel Yud. Anyone who decides to be engaged in Torah study and not work, and instead be supported by charity, this person desecrates God's name, degrades the Torah, extinguishes the light of our faith, brings evil upon himself and forfeits life in the world to come, since it is forbidden to derive benefit from the words of Torah in this world. The rabbis said, Pirkei Avos, chapter 4, Mishnah 5, anyone who derives benefit from the words of the Torah in this world forfeits his life in the world to come. They further commanded and said, do not make the words of Torah a crown to increase your own importance, or in acts which to, with which to chop. They further commanded in Avos, in Perak Aleph, Mishnah, Yud, love work and despise positions of power. And in Avos, also Perak Bays, Mishnah Bays, any Torah not accompanied by work will eventually be nullified and lead to sin. Ultimately, such a person will end up stealing from others. I think the majority opinion of the non-Haredi Haredi Jews in the world see a tremendous value 
in serving in the IDF and, of course, see a tremendous value in dedicating one's life to Torah study. There are um, a number of people, Baruch Hashem, thank God, a, n- a large number of people who can and should sit and learn all day for the sake of our people. Learning Lishma is an important part of our culture. However, many of us cannot imagine that all of the Haredi community needs to sit and learn with that intensity. Certainly many of them can't do it. Many of them don't want to do it, but many of them are forced culturally to, in fact, do it for fear that if they are exposed to the outside world, and this is their fear, if they are exposed to the outside world, then in some way they will lose their religiosity and their commitment to Torah mitzvot. One of the reasons why I wanted to start this series of talking to people who are successful in their careers and yet also successful in their observance of Torah and mitzvot is to show that perhaps there is a way to do both. To be honest, there's no question that you give up certain things. There's no question that overexposure to secular things, for lack of a better term, desensitizes you to some aspects of religion. We give that up in order to hopefully make a better life for our family and be an av hamon gayim, not live in a bubble where no one sees what we're doing, but be a light onto the nations. As Yaakov said, setting an example for people outside to see the way to live. When I started my career at um, in advertising, I was in my junior year at Yeshiva University, and I was advised by a number of people, this is in the late 80s, I was advised by a number of people not to wear a yarmulke. And I thought about it. At the time, my father, who was an engineer, did not wear a yarmulke at work. And I felt that if I wore my yarmulke, I would then be scrutinized in a different way, I would be asking for the scrutiny. I would be every bad Hebrew school teacher, any manager I had ever was. You know, I would be that reminder of the, the awful time, quote unquote, they spend trying to break their teeth on Hebrew before their bar bat mitzvah. And I didn't want to be that. And I didn't want to watch every word that I said and be very careful about what I was doing in public. And I felt it was a huge burden. You know, I always say that if you're, uh, sit- if you're on a, a, a subway train and you don't get up for the pregnant woman or the older person, you're the only one they're going to notice that didn't get up. And it's not you who didn't get up. It's the Jew who didn't get up. And it's a tremendous burden. And for the first 15 years of my career, I did not wear a yarmulke at work. After taking a break for a few years from advertising and subsequently returning, I chose to wear my yarmulke at work for all the reasons that I didn't wear it the first time around. You know what? I should be, we should be examples to our brothers and sisters who are less observant than we are. We should be examples to people who choose other lifestyles, other religions. We should show them what it means to be a committed Jew. We should show them how we need to act, how we need to behave. And behave is a great word. Because as we remember when we were children, our mothers would say, behave. And we knew what she meant. And when people give excuses and people second guess and people, and people, um, uh, justify 
their poor behavior. It's a defense mechanism that we see right through. The lesson is, we should be proud of who we are. The lesson is, we should not hide who we are. And the lesson is, we should behave. We purport to live our lives a different way. 613 extra rules, or let's, let's put it, um, 606 extra rules that we expect to live by that the rest of the world has no capacity to understand. That requires us to show that we can act a certain way, that the limitations on our lifestyle make us stronger. I found that when I started working in uh, in advertising, I felt it was almost unfair to my uh, co-workers who were just graduating college as I was. For 19 years, I took a double program. From kindergarten on, we were in school later, we learned more, and we had a dual curriculum. Graduating Yeshiva University gave me the ability to work differently and think differently and manage my time differently. Think about what that means about managing time. So much of what we do as committed Jews is managing time. What time is Mincha? What time is Shkia? What time is Shabbos? What time, what time can I put on tefillin in the morning to make it to work on time? Do I need to find a minion in the city because I can't put on tefillin until after I really need to be in Manhattan? All these things make us focus on things and own up to things that we might not necessarily, or let's put it this way, our colleagues certainly don't necessarily focus on on a regular basis. Well, I think these are all important lessons, and I hope to be able to discuss them in the future and bring them forward. We've got one more article, but let's take another break for one more song. Mark Zomach right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. This is The Stunt Show on jamtheam.org. Yes. 
with you on the stun show with Benny Friedman's Yesh Tikva maybe the best song that came out in the past year in my opinion an amazing message an amazing tune amazing words a real popular song across the board in um in our community Yesh Tikva im nashir kulanu yachad Yesh emuna chazakami kolapachad loni po loni rad ki anachnu lo levad Yesh lanu Hashem basically there is hope if we are together we can believe. Hashem leads us wherever we need to go. I uh, just wanted to wrap up for a couple minutes another great article from this week's Jewish Press by Elliot Resnick, the uh, interviewer of, as shall we say, in the Jewish Press. And he interviews the uh, chief rabbi of South Africa, Rabbi Warren Goldstein, interviewed on Jamie the M a few weeks ago. The title of the article is Ehrlichkeit, Humility, and Communal Unity. Warren Goldstein co-wrote a book called The Legacy, Teachings of uh, for Life from Great Lithuanian Rabbis. He co-wrote it with the famed historian Rabbi Beryl Wine. There are a couple questions that the Jewish press asked him that I want to highlight, certainly in light of our uh, initial discussion, but 
maybe in light of our initial discussion, in light of the song we just played, and in light of uh, life messages that we need to focus on on a regular basis. So the first question the Jewish, ask, Jewish press asks him, what are some of the central Litvish values that you and Rabbi Beryl Wine identify in the legacy? I guess as a side point, I would say that we certainly associate values with Hasidus and Hasidic Rebbe's, and perhaps the premise of the book that there are inherent values in, a, let's call it a non-Hasidic version of a from lifestyle. So Rabbi Goldstein answers, one is the broad area of what one could call menschlichkeit. Another major value is limudat Torah and how it impacts our whole world view. And a third one is responsibility for Klal Yisrael, finding a sense of mission in, serv- in servicing the Klal. Again, this ties everything back. I didn't even realize it did until I'm reading it again. ties everything back to what we've discussed so far today. It's great to learn Torah. It sustains our people. But you also have to have responsibility to the Klal and menschlichkeit. Otherwise, it means less. The next question, aren't these values basic to Judaism? In what sense are they Litvish values? He answers, well, I think the beauty of being part of the Klal Yisrael is that different hashkafos and worldviews emphasize different parts of Avodah Hashem. Rabbi Wine and I are emphasizing those values we received from Arabeim. We believe they can be of great benefit to Klal Yisrael, but we encourage other people to write from their own Mesorah as well. Uh, the next question, the Lithuanian, the, the legacy, you write, that Lithuanian Jews often quipped that a Jew is not from, a Jew is Erlich. What does that statement mean? So Rabbi Goldstein responds, it's essentially talking about a refinement of character and a deep integrity and humility. Rabbi Shlomo Walby, who was one of the great Musser thinkers of the 20th century, explains that sometimes the drive to be from can actually have harmful effects if it's not guided by the right midos and values. It can be motivated by being self-centered. In my opinion, by the way, to digress from the article, as we wrap up, in my opinion, a great example of this is somebody who runs for the bima when they want to say Kaddish, when they have Yartzeit, when they were Chiyav, and knocks somebody else off the bima. You have to not only realize that it is a zchus, to the person who you are saying Kaddish for, to daven for the Yamad, it might be more of a zchus to that person to have the proper midos to give the Yamad to somebody else. Just an example, just me preaching. I'm not a rabbi. I don't pretend to be one. Anyway, we are out of time. This is Mark Zamek on the Stun Show, on the Nachum Siegel Network. Hopefully you enjoyed the program as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Stay tuned for the best available program on the Nachum Siegel Network. This is JM and the AM.org. Oh, I love